0: Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Colby Sweatberg. Colby is the CEO of Silver Lining Mentoring, an organization working with youth aging out of foster care in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome, Colby. Thank you so much for joining our podcast series. How are you doing today? Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing great. I love the summertime. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) I'm a fall and spring person myself, but I'll take summer over winter any day. (laughs) Every day. (laughs) Well, I really appreciate you being here. I think to get started, what I'm going to do is ask you, Colby, if you could please share... A little bit about yourself and your background and
1: the journey that you went through to come to be connected with the foster care system. Sure. My career started in education, actually. Mm -hmm. I was a high school English teacher early in my career, and I loved teaching. I loved working with teens, and being in the high school setting was really fun because I was teaching in a public school outside of Philadelphia and had the opportunity to work with young people who were learning all of different kinds of things about themselves. And while I was charged with being their English teacher, so got to talk a lot about literature and, and reading and writing and all those kinds of things. What I found was that I ended up really loving the time before school and after school and in between classes where young people would find their way into my classroom and come to hang out and talk about their lives. And mm-hmm. I had developed relationships with the guidance department and became close with the school social worker. And they would often kid me and say, you know, you're really a social worker at heart. (laughs) And they would often funnel young people into my classes who I would call down and say, this person doesn't necessarily meet the criteria for this class. I'm kind of surprised that they're in, you know, intro to poetry or whatever. And they'd say, well, we just think you two should connect. And so I really enjoyed connecting with young people who were struggling with with lots of different life situations. Some of them were managing domestic violence at home or substance abuse or were coming out as queer or were trying to figure their way through some difficult identity stuff as teens. And I ended up as a, I was a queer educator and it was really important to me to be creating safe spaces. And so I ended up working with some really courageous young people to start the schools and the district's first GSA at the high school. And it really fueled my desire to make change. For those who may not know, could you explain GSA Yeah, GSA is a gender and sexuality alliance. So it's a a club for young people, you know, an after-school group or a club where anybody can be a part of it. Back in the, you know, when I was there back in the 90s, it was, it stood for Gay-Straight Alliance. And now GSA has evolved into Gender and Sexuality Alliance to being more inclusive of the spectrums of identity and including the entire LGBTQIA spectrum. And so I was teaching in a really conservative public school system. And it ended up being a big deal and created a lot of attention, both within the school setting and in the community. And it turned into a bit of a larger social justice conversation. And there was not a lot of initial support for this idea. And so long story short, as this took shape and became part of the school, it took a lot of conversations with the administration and the community and leadership from the time of having first conversations with a school leadership who said, you know, when I said, we've got a problem with homophobia here. And they said, homopho, what? Is this some sort of newfangled disease? And I said, well, (laughs) it's a social disease and the school is symptomatic of it. But the good news is we can do something about that. So my fire to really make Change, And I knew as a queer adult in that school building that if I didn't feel comfortable as a queer adult being out and having the opportunity to really have these difficult conversations with community members about why we need to make change, then it couldn't possibly feel safe to young people. So long story short, that opportunity to work closely with this group of students and to establish this GSA led me to realize that I really did have a passion for making change and for working with young people, especially who didn't have natural supports in their lives or that they were struggling to find places of belonging. I ended up applying to grad school and moved to Boston to come to grad school where I wanted to focus on anti-homophobia education. I ended up making a film in grad school, it got some traction, and I showed it to, I did some film screenings with a friend who I'd made the movie with in and around the country. And it turned out one of the screenings was here in Boston at a social service agency. And afterwards, they came to me and said, we're going to be starting up a group home for LGBTQ young people. And we'd like you to come be on the leadership team to help found this program and get it off the ground. So that was my foray into child welfare. They knew that I had focused on LGBT young people. They knew I had an education background and they wanted somebody who could work with the schools, knowing that a lot of queer kids in the system are kept out of schools and face a number of challenges in educational environments where they can't find safety and support. And so I realized when I started working, this was a program that still exists. So we founded the program. This was back in, I think, 2002, maybe. We opened and the program still exists. It's called Waltham House. And that was my entry into the foster care system. And I knew soon after starting to work there that this was the thing that really lit me up, was getting to work with young people who didn't have the same privilege that I had had, frankly, growing up. I had the tremendous privilege of growing up in a family of origin where I had safety and security. And when I was working with young people in this program, they had been bounced around from place to place they weren't able to find safety and be themselves in their families. It was really powerful to get to see them blossom in an environment where they could come out and be their full selves and find their voice and be surrounded by other young people and adults who are role models. And We saw different things that had been challenges in their lives melt away when they could be acknowledged and called the name that they wanted to go by or the pronouns that they wanted to go by. That was the kind of key for me to get to this place of saying, okay, foster care is where I want to make change. So I ended up being there for, I think, eight years or so. And then a former boss of mine mentioned that this organization, this mentoring organization, was looking for new leadership and recommended that I take a look. And so I ended up at Silverlighting Mentoring 13 years ago, back in 2009, and really loved that it was the hopeful side of working with young people in the child welfare system because they could choose to be part of the program. And I really liked that, that young people were in the driver's seat. That they could opt into the program. They weren't mandated into it. They could come and say, I want a mentor. I want somebody who can be in my corner, someone who is going to be an ally to me. So I have been at Silver Lining ever since.
0: Wonderful. Now the Waltham House, I'm assuming that's Waltham, Massachusetts.
1: Yes, that's right. And Silver Lining, that's in Boston. We are, yes, we are located in greater Boston. So our headquarters is in Boston and we have regional and national programs We actually started out, we were founded by a young man who grew up in foster care. He says, you know, I got lucky. I was one of the young people who ended up finding my forever family and getting adopted out of foster care after bouncing around for a while and having a relationship with his bio family in different fits and spurts, but then needing to be in care and then was adopted out of care. And he said, you know, the thing that made the biggest difference for me was that I had these consistent connections. And when I was adopted, I had long-term consistent relationships, but my peers who remained in care didn't have that. And so he wanted to start a mentoring program for young people in care. And the premise of Silver Lining Mentoring is that we match one young person who is involved in the child welfare system with one volunteer mentor, makes a long-term commitment. And we ask that they make a commitment for at least eight hours a month for at least one year. But the reality is that our mentor-mentee matches end up staying together for much longer. In fact, our average match length is 55 months. And when you compare that to the national average of nine months, our matches are outperforming mainstream matches by several multiples. Wow. Yeah. The stickiness of that is part of what makes this so special is that I think our young people are really compelling, that they are eager to have somebody in their life who is going to be there for them, who's going to be walking the walk with them, showing up for them when they are bounced around from place to place. Well, so many
0: other programs have young people who might be volunteering for a mentor program, but might not have that longevity of a relationship. What do you attribute that to? What's the secret sauce there?
1: Yeah, so there are a few things. I think there are many terrific mentoring programs out there. I'm a firm believer that mentoring is for everybody. We all need mentors, and I certainly am so grateful for the mentors in my life. When we look at what makes our mentoring relationships sticky at Silver Lining Mentoring, The first piece is the expectation setting and that our recruitment and screening process is bringing people in. We are looking for specific qualities that we know and that the research bears out, makes mentors well-prepared and ready to do this. And so looking for those qualities in the folks that we are recruiting and clearly communicating what the expectations are and what mentoring looks like so that everybody comes in on the same page, eyes wide open. Second piece is mentor training. We put a lot of time and energy into developing our mentor training. And over and over again, we've heard from our volunteer mentors that they come in feeling really well-prepared because we put them through this process of rigorous learning, where they are engaging in lots of different didactic exercises and conversations. They are learning from our program coordinators, all of whom are our master's level social workers who are teaching them about the impact of what it means to be involved with the child welfare system, impacts of trauma on healthy development, understanding healthy boundaries, talking about cultural responsiveness and the importance of locating yourself within your identities from a diversity, equity and inclusion perspective understanding if you are a white mentor, and you are matched with a young person of color, what the privilege that you carry will mean in this relationship and how it might play out and really asking mentors to interrogate that for themselves before they're in this relationship and understanding where these things might show up. So We do an in-depth dive with potential mentors and ask them to really look at their own backgrounds and to come in with a level of self-awareness that then really benefits the young person in the mentoring relationship and helps the relationship to be focused on that young person.
0: What are a few of the qualities that you think really are key
1: to being a successful mentor? So there are seven primary qualities that we look for in potential mentors that make somebody especially effective. And they are youth focused, somebody who is making the young person's needs the top priority in the relationship, a mentor who is trauma informed, so they can apply the trauma-informed skills that we teach during our mentor training to their role. So are you looking for them to be already familiar with trauma-informed care? Nope. That's something that we teach. Gotcha. So we okay. expect them to come in with that background. It can be, you know, a lay person who has no background in trauma, but we teach that in our mentor training. We are looking for mentors to be strengths based. So they're focusing on the potential and inherent good and independence of young people rather than focusing on deficits. We're looking for mentors who are warm and friendly and patient. So they're going to be offering consistent friendship in a patient way, recognizing that sometimes things come up in young people's lives that are beyond their control and that there might be frustrations along the way, but that is not a reflection of the young person and that. Sometimes it can take time for a young person to open up and want to get to know them. We're looking for folks who are culturally responsive and social justice focused. And what that means is that we want our mentors to strive for cultural awareness and to offer social justice allyship with young people who may identify as youth of color, LGBTQ+, or living with a disability or a different socioeconomic status than their mentor. Again, coming in with that cultural humility And with a learner's mind, wanting to know and understand a young person in their evolving identities, because our young people, you know, we know a primary task of teenagerdom and growing up, if you look at Erickson's research and understand what it means to be a teen, one of their primary developmental tasks is to try on different identities and to figure out who they are. And so that's part of this process. We want mentors to be along for the ride and not trying to have guardrails around how they expect a young person to identify or who they are. Really, it's young person be the narrator of their own story. And then the last two, we're looking for mentors who are open and willing to learn and are self-aware and reflective. By that willingness to learn, we want them to be eager and curious. We want them to be ready to receive feedback and to seek support from our staff because we do provide a lot of that. I mentioned two of the three qualities that I think are what make our mentoring relationships sticky. So the, the way that we set expectations in our recruitment training process, the robust training was the second piece. And then the third piece is that we think part of our secret sauce is the triangle that we see as the relationship between the mentor, the mentee and their program coordinator on our staff, because each young person and mentor are supported by a clinician on our team. And our program coordinators who are clinicians carry intentionally low caseloads. They are supporting the mentor and the young person so that anytime something comes up, if the mentor says, you know, geez, I didn't know how to handle this situation. They have somebody who they can call and talk through, who knows the young person, who knows the mentor deeply, and who supports both of them throughout the relationship. And then finally, the self-awareness and reflective piece is mentors who can reflect on their own actions in order to strengthen the relationship, to really be able to step out and look inside the relationship and use it as a mirror to reflect on how they can continue to grow and connect. Wow, that's fantastic. I really
0: appreciate that because there may be some folks listening who are looking to start a mentor program or maybe assess their own mentor program and see where they could make some improvements. That's a very thorough list of qualities, but how difficult is it to find the people who really meet those expectations and have those qualities in order to have enough mentors for your program? Because I know I've heard over and over again how difficult it is to find any mentors,
1: Yeah, it is a constant recruiting effort on our part that we are out in the community. We have a recruitment specialist whose entire job is to be out there meeting potential mentors and talking to folks about what it means to be a mentor and volunteering. We have found that mentors make great sources of referrals because the people in their lives, they end up, you know, talking about their relationship with their mentee and feeling like their mentee becomes a very important part of their lives. And our mentors will say to a person that they often come in thinking like, Oh, I'm gonna be doing this good thing. I'm you know, I'm looking forward to volunteering and sort of giving my time. And all of them end up saying, I got so much more back. It sounds cliche. Mm-hmm. They always say, I got so much more back from this than I ever expected to, and I get way more than I give. So I think our mentors are great sources of referrals because their friends and the people that they talk to end up saying, "Wow, that sounds really incredible and sometimes can be transformative." So we find mentors through other mentors, we are, you know, people find us online when they are searching for volunteer opportunities and we are a referral source for other mentoring organizations too. Sometimes people they'll send young people and potential mentors our way. And Lynn, to your earlier point about folks who may want to start up mentoring programs, we are national work At the Silver Lining Institute, which is part of Silver Lining Mentoring, our our national arm, the Silver Lining Institute is in place to do just that, to coach people to provide training and technical assistance to other mentoring programs and startups serving youth in care. We provide training and technical assistance at no cost if they can apply for this no-cost opportunity to work with us, and we help them, whether they are an established program looking to instill best practices and build the quality of their program or address a challenge that they've been having. Or if they're a burgeoning program and are early on in creating something new, we coach them through that process. So that's exactly why we're in place. For those who are listening who might be interested in getting in touch
0: with you about that, what's the best way for them to do that? Where should they go?
1: Yeah, they can come to our website. We're silverliningmentoring.org. You'll see the Silver Lining Institute at the top of the page. And if you click there, you can click on the page for SilverLining Institute it has an opportunity to put in a request and we'll follow up with you from there.
0: Fantastic. And I usually ask this at the end, but it seems to fit here. If anybody wanted to donate to your organization, do they go to the
1: same site? Same site. Yes. Silverliningmentoring.org. And there is a donate button in the upper right hand corner of the page. And we would love any support. It's really <laughs> to operate on the generous philanthropy and opportunities that others have provided for us to do the work this work is not funded in the same way that the child welfare system is and and by design so that we can be nimble and continue to meet the needs of young people as they evolve. Exactly.
0: And actually that's a good opportunity for me to let the listeners know that your organization won an award last year through Aging Out Institute, the midsize organization or program award. And so we were able to provide some financial support for you through
1: that. So we're very excited that you won and very excited that we can help you with your work. Well, thank you so much. We are so grateful to have you aboard as a champion who is clearly focused on the same population of young people that we are and is pushing the work forward. I think this is what it takes. It's making the partnerships that are needed so that we can serve all of the young people in foster care across the United States. We know there are about half a million young people in care in the U.S. In Massachusetts alone, there are about 10,000 youth in care. And we need to make sure that they have consistent connections, because that is the one thing that continues to be missing from young people's lives, that consistent connection to an adult. We know that young people are moving all the time. Here in Massachusetts, they're moving quite frequently. It's something that surprises people, but the newest report from DCF here shows that young people in care in Massachusetts experience eight placement changes during their time in custody. And that's a lot of different caregivers and schools and communities that they are cycling through. And the difference that one consistent adult can make is huge because our mentors follow young people when they are moved. So even if they get moved to a different group home or a different foster home or a different placement, the mentor follows them and meets them there. It's often the first face they will see once they have settled into their program. And oftentimes it's the only visitor they will get. And so that mentor can play a really, really important role in being that thread and also being a historian for the young person, because oftentimes they are the only adult in the child's life who is not paid to be there and therefore has been there the longest. And so they've seen young people through the different stages of growing up through adolescence or latency or, you know, all of the bad haircuts and weird teeth and breakups (laughs) and school plays and, you know, all that kind of stuff. The mentor is often the one consistent person who's been there throughout. And so it's a really unique role.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Before we move on, I did want to just get a little clarification around how big your program is how many staff do you have? I know you said you have program coordinators. Are they all social workers? How many students do you serve in a year? Just trying to get a sense of the scope of your program.
1: Yeah. So we serve about 250 young people regionally each year and nationally through our training and technical assistance work with other organizations across the country, we reach 10,000 youth each year. So the Silver Lining Institute is still relatively new. It's in its third year now, and we are very proud to be reaching 10,000 young people annually through the work that we're doing with all these organizations nationwide. Here in Greater Boston, our headquarters, our staff is, I think, 23 or so folks, and it's a combination of our one-to-one mentoring program. And our Life Skills Program and Transition Age Youth Program. So we are in our Transition Age Youth Program, we are building that out, knowing that there are a lot of young people who are in that, you know, preparing to age out or transitioning to independence and need different kinds of support. So we're going deep there and building out new services for youth at that stage. And then in the lead up to aging out for young people who are 16 and older, our program teaches life skills. It's called Learn and Earn. And so Learn and Earn teaches life skills to young people, financial literacy, employment, et cetera. And young people get paid for their participation in the program. They reach certain milestones and they are earning money along the way. And so they don't have to choose between learning and earning. They can do both because early on when we started the program and just taught life skills, young people are saying, well, I don't want to have to choose between my job and coming to learn this stuff. This is important, I know, but I need to be earning money too. So we said, well, what if we do better than paying you your minimum wage that you're earning at the local grocery store, bagging groceries or whatever? We're going to pay you for your participation in this life skills program. We're going to match you with a mentor. You will have a program coordinator who is supporting you and your mentor. And in addition to the money that you earn, any money you save, we will match it dollar for dollar. So you come out of the program with a nest egg that you can put toward whether it's housing or tuition or childcare costs or whatever you need, you will have the support of a long term mentor, the support of a program coordinator on staff, the money you earned, the money that we matched, and the life skills that you learned. So, learn and earn provides that helpful bridge to independence and that longer term connection that we know is so important for young people.
0: That's fantastic. And I think the matching concept I've heard before. But I believe this may be the first program I've heard about where you actually are paying young people to participate with that mindset of the, you know, the earn and learn. So they don't have to worry about working and spending the time elsewhere.
1: Yeah, we felt like that was really important because we know that young people are faced with impossible choices like this. And when they need to earn money, there's nothing else that can feel more important than their livelihood. And so we wanted to be able to say, you can do both. And they're doing it side by side with their mentor, which is also really important that mentors are going through this life skills program alongside them. So they're sitting together in a workshop learning the life skills. So for the first hour or so, you know, they might be going over how to create a resume and doing a workshop that's interactive with other peers, you know, mentors and mentees. And then we have dinner. And then in the second half of the workshop, they're pairing off in their mentor-mentee relationships and they're working sometimes on creating their resume and have, you know, saving it on a device that we give them that they can then keep after the program. And so we set up Google drives with them and help them create a budget that, again, they keep and they can use ongoing after this. So we're trying to build the skills and resources, but they're doing it in relationship with a mentor. And some of our mentors have often said like, oh, wow, I never knew what an APR score was. Like we talked about credit tonight and building credit. I didn't know that myself, but I learned it at Learn and Earn. Or, you know, I learned this new thing about how to do my taxes. And I didn't know that except for coming to Learn and Earn. It's fun for our young people to sit with their mentors and be learning together. And oftentimes, it sort of disrupts this power dynamic of having young people think that adults know everything. (laughs) It's fun to learn side by side. Well, it
0: also provides the same language, right? The mentors are learning the same terms, acronyms, concepts as the young person is so that they can have conversations about it. If you do them separately, the mentor might not have any idea what you're talking about. And so the youth might just clam up about it. Exactly. So how long do you work with the young people as far as how old, you know, is there a limit as to how old they are? And can they come back? Like, let's say they've aged out and they're older. Can they come back and get connected to your program or do they need to get connected to your program before aging out?
1: Yes. So we do have young people who have aged out and get connected to the program. We have different ways that young people can come to us. They can be referred through DCF directly. They can be referred through a partner program Young people can self-refer so they can come to us all different ways. It's more about kind of meeting the criteria that they've been impacted by foster care and they're interested in a mentor, they're interested in participating In our programs, we have a participant advisory board that is some of our older youth and young adults, and they are a group that really informs our practices. And we ask them for feedback about different directions that we are thinking about going or ways that their needs are evolving in the pandemic, for example. I remember we were just starting lockdown and we were so concerned about what was happening to young people, especially those who were aging out or had recently aged out and didn't have places to be. And the first participant advisory board meeting we had on Zoom pulled young people together and had a go round and said, you know, how are you doing? What do you need? What's happening? Like, let's get the 411 on where everybody is so we can start deploying resources. And this is just so typical of young people in foster care. These young adults who were on the brink of homelessness or had lost housing had lost jobs. You know, they were all working in jobs that got redlined immediately when the pandemic hit. So most of them became unemployed within the first couple of weeks. And the first questions they asked were about their younger peers. They said, we're so worried about kids who are stuck in group homes. This must be so hard for them. How are they doing? How can we help them? So here we are, we're asking the most at-risk group of young people we serve who don't have the safety net of the child welfare system anymore because they've aged out, And their first concern was, what about the kids who are in group homes? This must be so hard for them. They must be feeling so isolated. It's such a reminder about the generosity of spirit, the genuine care and connection that this population has for one another, and that they're so often forced to grow up way too quickly and yet are routinely reaching back to care about their siblings and their peers in ways that are incomprehensible to most people. Well, so many young people
0: who experience foster care go into jobs and careers where they can help in some way. I aged out of foster care and Aging Out Institute evolved out of wanting to do something to help young people who are facing adulthood coming out of foster care. So I just know so many young people choose to do that. It's not unexpected to have that
1: heart. Exactly. And I think, you know, back to your question about the stickiness of relationships and what makes this work. You know, young people in foster care are so incredibly compelling because they have lived so many lives in however old they are. They have seen so much and this fortitude and strength that they have, this just internal reserve, the depths of which I don't think we ever truly see because they are put in situations where they so often have to dig deep. And the resilience that comes from that, it's so incredibly impressive and the skills of reading people and reading situations. And you will know this, Lynn, from your own experience. But there are so many adults who never experience foster care who will never have the people skills that young people in foster care have by virtue of having to have read the tiny nuances in a situation, having to predict unpredictable behavior from adults around them because their safety and livelihood depended on it. And they put those skills to such good use in caring for the people around them and figuring out solutions and making life work in seemingly impossible situations. And I just think when young people in care get into a healthy, consistent mentorship with an adult, it's so powerful for both people because of that resilience, because we all need connection. And it's the one thing that youth in foster care are consistently denied because of the transience that the system imposes on them.
0: I think that's the key. So many young people go through very, very challenging situations in foster care. And if they don't have somebody who can help them work through that, that's where you start getting the statistics of homelessness and drug abuse and incarceration. I don't know what the statistics are, but I know there are research studies of how many of those young people who ended up in those circumstances did not have a solid relationship with a supportive, caring adult versus those who are successful. I know it's a key factor for success. I just don't know if the comparison has been made directly. But I think the mentoring that you are doing there is, like you're saying, it's critical of all the other skills that they learn. The primary factor for success is that relationship.
1: Well, I think you're so right. We think of mentorship often as the gateway drug to healthy relationships, right? Because it's oftentimes the first time they have been in a healthy relationship. And so to be able to figure out what that looks like and feels like, that if they can maintain a healthy connection with a healthy adult, then it opens them up to other opportunities to make healthy connections with other people, peers, adults alike, so that they can be successful in school. And in jobs, and in relationships, in family situations, in romantic connections, whatever it is, because you can't be it if you can't see it. And so when they have an opportunity to go, oh, wow, this person shows up when they say they're going to show up. This person does what they say they're going to do. This person respects my boundaries. This person is genuinely curious about me and compassionate about my life. And when I fall, they want to be there to pick me up and endure with me, not to wag a finger or judge, but really to be in the muck with me and to cheer me on that I have somebody who is in my corner cheering and feeling so proud when something good happens. And I
0: would also say somebody who isn't trying to fix me. Yes. Yes. I think so many people come into mentoring thinking that they're going to be the fixer. They're going to find a young person and save them somehow. And that's not the right mindset. I worked at Milton Hershey School for many years. You might be familiar with that school if you're from the Philly area. They work with young people from at-risk backgrounds. And that was one of the things we looked for when we were hiring house parents is that they did not have that mindset that they were coming in to save young people.
1: We look for that too, to screen those folks out. They're not a fit for mentoring. And I mean, just to the point that how you said there are so many things that the mentoring relationship can lead to that a relationship is so critical. You know, when we think about the science of happiness, there's been so much talk about that, especially over the last couple of years, as all of us have felt, you know, despondent at different times during the pandemic and felt (laughs) sense of isolation. You know, so many young people in foster care when the world was shutting down and everyone was in these stay at home orders were in place and people were feeling isolated. It was like, well, this is what young people in foster care have been facing for so long. Welcome to the cold shower, folks, because, well, A, staying at home, well, what does home mean when you're in foster care? And B, the isolation of being cut off from so many relationships and not being able to see people or connect with people is all too familiar. And so when we look at the science of happiness and sort of what those components are, we know that connection is one of those key components. And that, you know, all the studies that have been done about people who are later in life, how do you predict happiness? Well, people in their 70s and 80s who are happiest are those who develop the most human connections in their 20s and 30s. If you don't know how to do that, if you haven't had the opportunity to build consistent connections, then you're not set up for success. So we want to be able to teach young people how to be in healthy relationships as soon as we can so that they can exercise that muscle. That is deprivation of a key part of healthy human development. The child welfare system is charged with providing Meals and shelter and, you know, the very most basic things when we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? But that sense of belonging that is the cornerstone of Maslow's hierarchy, that it's actually, you know, we can go without getting our our physical needs met at times. We can be in highly unsafe situations in war-torn countries or in situations where violence is always a threat, but we will still turn to connection over and above all other needs. So I think that really comes back to me when I think about what is absolutely essential for young people. It is that sense of belonging, that sense of connection.
0: So what can we do? It's a good segue to the question of what can the foster care system do to help young people make these connections sooner rather than later? Not like, okay, you're 18 now. Let's see what we can do to connect you to a mentor program, but helping young people who are older in the system start that process. It's a big system and there's so many moving parts and every county, every state, right, does things differently. Do you have any ideas around how they can improve what we're doing to help young people be ready for adulthood?
1: Yes. I would love to see a system where as soon as a young person becomes involved with the child welfare system, they get matched with a volunteer mentor, that there is somebody on the outside who is not involved with the system, who is not paid to be there, it's not part of their job, but they have this relationship of somebody who can take them out to do things in the community or meet them at their group home and play cards or a board game or do an art project or throw a baseball in the backyard, whatever it is. Somebody who is not connected to the reasons why they're involved in the system in the first place, nor somebody who is trying to get them to reach certain treatment goals but somebody who is just there to be a friend, to just show up and be in their corner. I think that would go a long way. And frankly, I think that would go a long way for the other adults in that young person's life as well. Whether it's the family of origin, whether it's the group home staff, whether it's a foster family, all those adults need breaks too. And so having somebody on the outside who can come in and spend time with that young person is good for everybody. So If I could make one change, having that be the case from the minute young people get involved in the system, that assignment and match up however long they're involved in the system, whether it is a shorter term or a longer term, that would be key. So then the question is, how do we
0: get more programs like yours out there? I know you're trying through your institute, which is awesome. But you also would need that partnership. You would need a partnership between the official formal child welfare system and these nonprofits that aren't directly involved or hired or working for child welfare to be able to do that matching. You would need a lot of mentor programs. And I know with, especially if you're in Boston, you probably have a lot more young people there than you do mentors, at least in your program. So how can we at least start to make that happen?
1: Partnership is key. You're exactly right, Lynn. When I think about how, you know, if a worker from a child welfare system is put on a case, a young person is admitted into care, the worker is then making referrals and trying to figure out what is needed for this family, what is needed for this young person. If mentoring was seen as one of those critical ingredients, not a nice to have, not an extra, but a critical nutrient that is essential to this young person's well being, along with whatever the other essentials might be, whether it's shelter and food, whether it's therapy, whether it's educational resources that are needed. But mentoring should be seen as part of that handful of resources that every young person needs. That can happen through partnership and it, it does seek education, but we can work with whether they're, again, mainstream mentoring programs who wanna learn how to work with youth in foster care or whether there are child welfare organizations that want to start mentoring programs. That's what we are here to do because we just so firmly believe we are one of the only mentoring programs in the country that is exclusively focused on youth and foster care. But there are tons of mentoring programs out there and there are tons of child welfare agencies out there. What if we could help on both sides? The mentoring programs serve youth and care better and the child welfare agencies run mentoring programs.
0: I think somehow we need to break down geographical, territorial, financial barriers. I think some of that is preventing the partnerships that could really make big improvements in the system.
1: Yes. And if we recognize, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of those barriers have to do with money and federal budgets. But we know, you know, taxpayers pay an average of $300,000 in societal costs for each young person who ages out of care. And so when we look at Boston, you know, every year approximately 200 of Boston's young people age out of care, resulting in a societal cost of 60 million dollars every year. We never want to talk about this work in terms of dollars and cents, but like for the people who are making decisions about budgets and and who want to solve problems simply because it costs less, there's a strong argument to be made for a solution like mentoring, which doesn't cost nothing. But it certainly is a lot more cost effective and a lot more beneficial to young people and their families, as well as society, if we can get them in mentoring relationships. Yep, exactly.
0: It's just who does the big picture return on investment study to be able to come back and say, look, (laughs) that's right. That would be wonderful. I love dreaming and thinking about how things can be improved. But in the meantime, programs like yours, you're trying to help other organizations be successful in their mentoring programs, at least on the private side. Movement is being made. It seems like more and more programs are starting to address this particular population. And so I have hope that at least there's a little bit of momentum going.
1: I do too. And issues of foster care are being talked about more and more, which is helpful. We need visibility. We need mainstream media to be covering stories about foster care. We need to see characters in shows and in movies who are impacted by care and families who are impacted by care so that we can move this out of the shadows and have people understand why it is that young people come into care and what their experience is like in care. As Bill Russell said, there's no such thing as other people's children. These are our kids, all of our kids. And so we need to ensure a better world for all of our children, that if we would not have our own kids who are maybe biologically connected to us or in our chosen families experience childhood the way youth and care do, then we've got to change the system so that it actually cares for young people and keeps them connected to their families of origin whenever possible. Oh, yes. I
0: agree on that one
1: too completely.
0: Well, I would love to talk about this more, but unfortunately, we have come to the end of our time, Colby. I do want to say that I have family up in Massachusetts, in Waltham, in fact, so oh, maybe nice. someday I will be able to visit up there and I would love to come out and see your program if that's at all
1: possible. Oh, we'd love to have you at Silverlining Mentoring. Come anytime, Lynn. Okay. Appreciate
0: that. Thank you very much, Colby, for participating and being part of this podcast series. I've loved learning about your program and everything that you're doing beyond your mentoring program directly. I want to look into the Institute some more and see what's going on there. That's really intriguing. And I hope the folks who are listening also go look at that and see what it's all about. But thank you very much. I really appreciate your time.
1: Thanks for having me. And again, thanks for the support of the Aging Out Institute. And you're very welcome. Well, for those who
0: have listened to the end, thank you very much for doing so. We put out a podcast every couple weeks or so. You can find them on our website, agingoutinstitute.org. And then just look for the podcast link on the left. Also, we have a new Patreon site for those who want to support our podcast series. Just go to patreon.com slash agingoutinstitute. Thank you again for listening. Until next time.